Welcome to the Think Again podcast. I'm Denise St. Ivany. Today I'm joined by Macquarie Senior Equity Analyst, Elizabeth Jones. She's a healthcare specialist whose research and analysis is used by multiple investment management teams across the Delaware Ivy Funds lineup. Elizabeth is a medical doctor, as well as a chartered financial analyst. She's been a practicing physician at the University of Chicago Hospitals, and also in Phoenix for the United States Public Health Service. Elizabeth, I think this is gonna be an interesting conversation. So welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Denise. I'm really excited about the conversation. Good, good. Well, I wanted to touch on your deep background in medicine right at the top, but we probably should point out first that you've been an equity analyst since 2002. But would you tell us about your work in asset management prior to joining Ivy in 2018? Well, when I decided to switch careers, I went back and got my MBA um, with a concentration in financial management and capital markets, and then graduated in 2002 and got my first job with Bank of America Capital Management. This was based in St. Louis. I was born and raised there. I'm kind of a mid- Midwest girl and, um, and had a great experience. So I then moved to Kansas City, the other side of the state, and started working for um, a company called Kornitzer Capital Management and the family of mutual funds with the Buffalo Funds. Um, The Buffalo Funds were really known for growth um, at a reasonable price investing. Um, A couple of the people that actually started Buffalo Funds in the early 90s had actually been trained at Waddell and Reed. And of course, Waddell and Reed was acquired by Macquarie. And so so I learned a lot about their style of investing, which I, I, I wanted to go there because I really liked their style, which was investing based on long term trends constructing portfolios with low turnover. Um, And, you know, if you invest based on these long-term trends, you have the wind at your back. And if you pay attention to valuation, you know, you should outperform over the long-term and do it in a way that creates low turnover for the customers and is relatively concentrated and really distinguishes you from passive. That I believe it's critically important to, um, to, to do research. Um, that, is what, that is what we are selling our customers. We're selling, that, selling them that our research is gonna differentiate us and create better performance. And we need to invest in that research. It's the foundation of the business. Well, what about trends in advanced medicine that are uh, featuring in your work? You know, I think that, um, that as I think about areas that I'm super excited about and striving for us to gain exposure to, um, I think advanced biologics is an extremely important area. And I also think digital health is an extremely important area. So both of these, um, you know, in terms of um, COVID had actually, you know, had an impact. And maybe we could talk about that in a little bit. But the reason why I'm so excited about them is that, you know, for for many, many decades, healthcare was focused on small molecules. These are drugs that are made through a chemical process. And the, the, um, the formation or the development of drugs from a different process, which is based on proteins and large molecules, is is relatively newer. And basically, instead of 
chemically synthesizing these large molecules or proteins or other types of large molecules, we, we manufacture them through living cells. So we actually grow them. Um, and whereas we, we kind of started with things called monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, th those have been around for two to three decades. We now have branched out into so many other areas. So we have um, therapy where we're actually giving cells to people. We have ways of manipulating the genes of people, um, whether it's doing it by taking cells out of their body and changing this genetic makeup of those cells and putting them back, or actually there's even some breakthroughs in terms of editing the cells while they're in your body. Um, we have mRNA that certainly found its um, heyday in the, in the um, pandemic and as a solution to the pandemic through va vaccination. Um, so all of these different technologies um, can find their way either into biopharmaceutical companies or you can get exposure through investing in life science companies that provide the tools to manufacture these drugs. Now with the first solution, it tends to be a little bit higher risk, right? Because you're going after making a drug, um, success rates in clinical trials, you know, from starting phase one to getting FDA approval is maybe about 10, 15%. So it's a, it's a little risky. Um, so our approach to that is, you know, to be very cognizant of the downside. We're not investing in companies that are pipeline stories where there's a binary readout on a clinical trial that's going to make or break the company. We don't think that's being really good stewards of the um, resources our clients have given us. Um, so what we do is we, first of all, focus on kind of big ideas um, and we try and get exposure to these big ideas. Um, that we think, you know, there's a high probability of them happening over time, that it's not going to be a one product sort of idea. It's a multi-product sort of idea. And so there may, might be many different hits on gold. And these are companies that already have a very robust business. So they already are on the market selling drugs, generating cash, good margins, good returns on investment. Um, and so if we can find with that kind of um, um, downside protection uh, opportunity that's not priced in, that is a big idea that's going to evolve over, you know, years and maybe even decades, then that's, that, that we think is a good way to get exposure on the kind of riskier side, to keep the risk under control and really be striving to realize the upside. Um, another way to get exposure is by investing in companies that provide um, the tools, as I mentioned, and um, we call this bioprocessing. So the process of making a biologic. And because so many of these technologies are very novel, there's a ton of innovation going on in this area. And um, it, it doesn't mean you have exposure to any one drug, but you have exposure to an entire category. So there might be some companies that have expertise in providing these tools to um, the manufacturers of monoclonal antibodies.
There might be other companies that have expertise in providing the tools to sell in gene therapy companies. And there might be some that have exposure to all. And so we don't take on any binary risk. This is a market that's growing, you know, low double digits to almost 20%, depending on the year. And, um, and we really like that, that risk profile. Right. So like there's so many different facets of these changes and the variety of companies that can take advantage of all these changes. So you've got to go through all of them and figure out which one's the best investment. Exactly. And I mean, one of the things that's so great about it too, this bioprocessing industry is that, you know, when you make a biologic or really any drug, but certainly a biologic, we're not great at really characterizing these large molecules in the finished product. But what we do do is we um, we get a license for the process of manufacturing that. So the FDA is actually giving these companies the permission to manufacturing. So they're licensing their manufacturing process. So the process is the product. And if you are involved, if you're providing the tools for that process, you're in it for the long term. They're not changing it because that's what the approval is for. And so it's extremely sticky business as well. And as the drug goes through development, um, it, it, you know, it sells a little more in phase one and then more in phase two, phase three. And ultimately, when it gets approval, it continues to grow and it creates kind of this, the more products that you're supporting as they get approval, the bigger your business grows. And really, there's not even a lot of threat once that product um, faces some biosimilar competition after its exclusivity period, because then more companies come in, there's more manufacturing, and usually actually access even grows more. And so you're not impacted by any pricing impacts for the end product, since the, the cost of manufacturing the product is minuscule compared to the actual end user price of the product. So it's just, it's got great fundamentals. Good, good, good. Well, um, you touched on it a little bit, um, but there's been impacts to some of these areas because of COVID and everything that's been uh, part of the pandemic. Can you touch on maybe some of the ways they're, they're, these impacts have been felt? You know, biopharma has struggled with sort of um, its, its reputation for at least time I've been in this industry since 2002. And there's a perception that they kind of put money before profits. And certainly it was the innovation that biopharma provided that really um, dramatically impacted the morbidity and mortality from COVID. And so I think, you know, Pfizer, which is a company that provided a lot of vaccines is now considered one of the most highly regarded companies amongst the S&P 500, whereas it was not prior to that, it was a very low rank in, ter in terms of investor perception and public perception. So I think that the perception of the industry maybe has changed a little bit because of this. And I think that that is a, a good thing. I also believe that we're going to eventually, sadly, have another pandemic, whether it's in five years or 100 years, I don't know. 
but we could be doing things to prepare better next time. And, um, and so I do think that investment globally from governments in research and development in the life sciences is going to grow as a result of that. And that's already happening in the United States and certainly many markets. And then the, the, the final thing kind of within biopharma and um, life sciences is that there's gonna be, you know, when, when it first started, we didn't have anything. We didn't have gloves, we didn't have masks, we didn't, we, we didn't have anything. And that was partly because of global, global supply chains. And so there is likely going to be an onshoring of, of manufacturing. And a lot of the companies within the life science industry supply um, facilities with the instruments, the equipment to do these, make these drugs to do the research. And so they should be a beneficiary as there's more onshoring. And, and certainly there'll be some companies that potentially have headwinds because of this. Um, certainly as we bring more manufacturing onto our shores as a developed company that could have an impact in some de developing countries. I guess on maybe also on the digital health side, you know, this is an area that had a big boom with the pandemic because people were able to access healthcare through digital um, avenues. And, you know, that could, I do think there's probably a long-term trend to use telehealth to care for patients, but maybe there'll be a bit of a retrenchment before it con continues to grow as people kind of need to also see their doctors in person too some of the time. But other areas of digital health that maybe weren't impacted by the pandemic that have just continued to grow right through it that we're super, super excited about are within diabetes. Now, diabetes is a very challenging disease to treat. Many patients are on insulin. That means monitoring your blood sugars and then using that information to give doses of insulin. Many people on multiple injections a day. And now we have the technology to really automate that process. We have sensors that can measure glu glucose continuously, and we have pumps that can infuse it. And now we've connected these two with algorithms that can automate and kind of create a feedback loop. They're, they're not to the point where there's absolutely no need for human interaction, but the disease burden um, for people that have this disease that use this technology in terms of the efforts they're putting out to manage their disease is dramatically reduced with this technology. And so, you know, having technology is great, but if it isn't making it easier for people to take care of themselves, then it's not gonna, it's not gonna be a big commercial success. But it, when it not only delivers better outcomes, but does it when it's easier for you to care for yourself, I mean, I just think that's a win-win. So we really like that area and think we're at the very beginning of kind of that technology changing the world. That's amazing. Yeah. So really two significant parts, the analysis to see again, what the trend is, how it's working, but then you have to translate it to, is it an investment opportunity? That second part is where you are uh, working with a number of fund managers that they're able to tap into this work that you're doing. So they're depending on you to do that first part, analyze the companies, and then 
present the investment opportunity to them. So could you give us an example of those analytics that you're currently doing, how you work with your portfolio manager teams? I learn a lot from my portfolio managers. Um, you know, I, I, I think that they're portfolio managers for a reason. They clearly have demonstrated that they have um, an ability to really recognize good investments. And so while I do have multiple different portfolio management teams that I'm working with, I've learned something from, from all of them. I mean, and, and I think that that's so valuable to me as an analyst because it really just, like you said earlier, it broadens my perspective and everyone has something they're really good at that you want to try and emulate and make part of your process. But I would say that the consistent, consistent approach across all my portfolio managers is that they want exposure to big ideas and they want to do it with high quality management teams and have a very manageable risk profile. And they historically, if you do those things um, and you pick the right, you know, the right big opportunities, you're going to have really good downside protection and pick, pick a big, you know, big participation in the upside. So when I think about kind of what's been a, a huge idea over the past 20 years, 30 years, 20 to 30 years, it is oncology. I mean, just within breast cancer, I was kind of adding up all the, all the drugs that, that I'm just seeing in development with my companies. They're being commercialized right now and they're actually sales out there. And this is not chemotherapy. These are novel approaches that don't involve chemotherapy. And for breast cancer, the size of the market is in excess of 25 billion today by my calculations. And it didn't exist 20 years ago. And during that time, breast cancer has become something that particularly in the later stages where we are, you know, have had a lot of morbidity and mortality. If you catch breast cancer early, we're good at treating that and we've gotten better. But the big unmet need is in the late stages when you have metastatic. And we've improved survival rates about 60% over the past 20 years. And it hasn't been with one thing. It's been those that 25 billion is 10 to 20 different medicines that are out there. And so, you know, while I think oncology is still got a huge amount of unmet need and is an area we definitely want exposure to because we're not doing well in lung cancer. We have lots of room for improvement there. We need to do better in colorectal cancer. We need to do better in brain cancer. So still lots of opportunity within oncology to invest, but where are some areas that might play out like oncology did? I mean, these are big ideas. We're not looking for one solution. We're looking at companies that are positioning themselves for this big idea. And I would say that two that I'm super excited about and kind of, you know, thinking about how my PMs think and, you know, the risk profile that they want to take on and this kind of fitting with them, I would say that one is within neurology. I mean, the unmet need in neurology is profound. We have very few drugs that are actually disease modifying. The first drug that 
I would call profoundly disease modifying that got approval was a gene therapy for a devastating disease. And it was approved in the past five years. And that, that kind of group of drugs that target that disease, one's a gene therapy, but they all kind of go after the genetic malfunction um, is a $4.6 billion market now. And just within the past five years that's happened. So many different areas within neurology potentially have a genetic makeup or a genetic cause or some sort of a metabolic cause that we can target to actually disease modify. And I would say that I'm optimistic that certainly over the next 20 years, we're going to have some inroads in Alzheimer's. I mean, it is a, has a profound impact on our world. Certainly at least some people with Alzheimer's have amyloid in every other disease that has amyloid, amyloid getting rid of it seems to help that disease. We haven't been successful in trials so far, but I think that there's a, a you know, a, a good sound pathophysiolo pathophysiologic basis for, for targeting that. And, you know, we've improved upon the way we do the trials. We're doing a better job picking patients that have amyloid in the brain. We've gotten better at the drugs, being more specific at targeting it. And we're running the trials for a longer period of time. So we, we don't know it's going to be successful, but after 20 years of trying, I feel like we're getting closer. You know, we're, we're getting closer and I'm optimistic about that. Another area that I'm super optimistic about is the treatment of obesity. Now, we've had obesity drugs on the market, you know, on and off. Some, some come and go, some come and stay, but none of them have really been, had a big impact on human health. Um, and that's because typically you might have some modest weight loss that lasts for, um, you know, months and then you regain the weight. They also typically have some side effects that are not too positive um, in terms of raising blood pressure, increasing heart rate, um, sometimes some um, side effects from a psychiatric perspective in terms of affecting mood. So that has not been an area that I've really been super excited about, but now we have drugs that really get at the metabolic basis of obesity and they result in very profound um, weight loss. And they do it in a way that I would call a healthy way. Um, and at this point, only 20% of our population in the US is normal weight. That's down from 60% in 1970. And when you think about the amount of disease that is a result of that obesity, you know, obesity is the reason why people are predisposed to many, many other cancers. And if we can target that obesity and turn that tide and maybe in 40 or 50 years be back at something more like 50% that are normal weight in this country, the impact that that would have on human health in this country and the world would be just profound. So the first outcome trials in obesity for these drugs that kind of get at the metabolic basis of disease are gonna be reading out in the next year to year and a half. And I think it's highly likely 
that they're going to show that they reduce cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. Um, and with that in hand, I think it's going to become critical for payers to start reimbursing for obesity drugs and that this market will be extremely large and um, have a profound impact on human health over decades. So a very big idea. Gosh, there is absolutely no shortage of things for you to do and spend your time. The areas that you've touched on are so wide ranging today. And uh, it's nice to have this conversation where you touched on things outside of the pandemic, which has certainly been at the forefront. Uh, but it's nice to remind ourselves that there's this whole big world in healthcare that uh, is uh, should be considered for investment. So thank you for the work that you do and working with all of our teams. Um, we loved uh, hearing from you today and we'll enjoy uh, hearing from you in the future to see how some of these progressions are, are being handled and what opportunities they've um, allowed for investment. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being here today. I really appreciate it. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.